0: Well, good morning again to all of you in Southerton, and a special good morning to all of you folks up in Quakertown. I'm still recovering from all the hugs that you gave last week. Uh, Carlos, I owe you, you may die this week. Uh, Well, for those of you that weren't there, Carlos told everybody in Quakertown that I really needed to be hugged a lot when I was there. Uh, So I I did escape most of the hugs, but there were a few people that cornered me and got, they were bigger than me, so I had to kind of, I reluctantly hugged. Well, we're in a series that we're calling This is the Life. And in the series so far, we looked at the team that Jesus assembled. And if you can't think back that many weeks, here's what you need to remember. That was not the dream team he picked, right? They were kind of the rejects and the losers that he chose, the team that nobody else really wanted. But he takes that collection of misfits and he gives them an incredible assignment. He says, I want you guys to go out and just continue what you've experienced me doing. Whatever you've seen me do, you go do that. What you've heard me teach, you go teach. What you've seen me do, you now go do. And Jesus says the same thing to us. He takes a ragtag group of misfits like us, brings us to himself into a community, and says, now your assignment is just go in your context and your network of relationships, and you continue what I started with you too. And then we began to look at a few encounters that Jesus had. Now remember, the big assignment is to his disciples, you guys just continue to do what I've done but then Jesus keeps engaging and encountering people, and he does it in very countercultural ways. But it's all instructive. It's all part of the training. It's all part of Jesus' mission, and now our mission. Continue what he started with lepers by reaching out and touching and engaging and interacting with outcasts, with women that are sinful and people that are disconnected from society, not living up to the moral code. Jesus welcomes them and invites them into the little circle. And this morning, we're going to look at another example that's all about faith. But here's the interesting thing. Faith in the Bible is always connected to authority. Now, I know you may not think that, but if we're going to talk about this is the faith part of the series... Then we've got to talk about authority as well. So just to get you thinking about authority, I've got a little assignment to get us started, all right? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of a person, a position, a role, a rank that comes to mind when I say the word authority. What kind of people come to mind? Authority. You got one? All right. Tell the person next to you or the person nearby who or what came to your mind. You only get a couple seconds. Go ahead. I didn't think it was a joke. <laughs> All right, good, that's probably enough. All right, so who came to mind? A, a police officer? A boss? I, I hope you didn't say your wife or your kids. Uh, a coach? A teacher? Parents? Who, what kind of people came to, right, we think of authority. And when we think of authority, we think of people who have a position of people in some way or other that are kind of over us. Uh, I read an article a couple weeks ago that delineated four A's that have to do with authority. And here are the four A's. And they all kind of line up with authority: authority, accountability, affirmation, and acceptance. Aren't that right? Those are the four A's when we think of, when we think about somebody being over us or a superior. Now, here's normally how the flow works: it usually flows down. Right? Someone has the position of authority. And we could probably stop right there and say we need to remind ourselves that the Bible's pretty clear that we need to submit to the authorities that are over us. Now, you know, you don't have to submit if they tell you to do something outside of God's, you know, word and outside of God's command. So if your boss at work tells you to lie, you don't have to lie. You know, if your wife says you have to move to Canada where it's cold, you don't have to do that because, you know, that's sinful, right? Um, so you don't have to do things that, people, that authorities tell you outside of, you know, God's commands. But otherwise, we need to get in step. That means that when you have a curfew, you should obey the curfew. That means when you should be serving people, um, you need to be serving people. When your parents, when your little ones say, don't play in the street, don't play in the street. Um, when, when somebody says, could you do this for me? Someone in the th- We need to do it. That means when, sometimes it's hard, right? You ever get a a ticket from a policeman that you really didn't deserve? Not not that that ever happened to me, but I can tell by some of you and watching how you drive. Or or how about this, you're meeting with your tax guy, doing it these days? And he tells you, well, sorry to tell you, you owe a couple thousand dollars. Do you accept that, you know, with joy? Saying, well, you know what, the government is so good at allocating my resources, I'm more than happy to send them my money. Um, You know, sometimes it's hard to submit Well, the Bible doesn't say submission is all about being easy. There are authorities, and we need to kind of live in sync and in step with those authorities. But the way the normal flow works is those authorities have a position above us. Think hierarchy. They are superior to us. They are our superiors, we say at work, right? They then hold us accountable. Isn't that how it works? So your boss or somebody at work says something like this, your manager or foreman. Since I'm the authority, I'm going to set up these hoops these goals, these objectives that you have to perform. And if you jump through the hoops in the right order and you do things properly in an order, I will then affirm you. I'll give you a raise. I'll give you a bonus. I'll give you a promotion. I'll pat you on the back. I'll give you words of praise, right? And it's not only at work. We do this sometimes as parents, right? We're the parent. We set up accountability structures, hoops you jump through. And then if they jump through the hoops well, then there's affirmation, praise, rewards that come after And then after all of that, maybe if they do a really good job, maybe if you do a really good job, there may be acceptance at the end. You can talk to your therapist about that. Uh, But is that how it normally flows? It's a hierarchical, top-down model. Authority, accountability, affirmation, and maybe acceptance. Now, here's the interesting thing. What does Jesus do with that flow? he kind of turns it on its head, doesn't he? In fact, if you think about just a few examples that we've looked at already, he welcomes and accepts everybody that comes. He welcomed and accepted those crazy disciples as misguided and flawed as they were. He welcomes the sinful woman from the city. He welcomes the leper. Jesus kind of turns it upside down. He welcomes and accepts everybody. Now, what causes that acceptance? Well, maybe we get a little hint of it in the passage we're going to look at today. You ever wonder what would absolutely amaze Jesus and astonish him? You ever wonder that? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible tells us. Here's a verse that we read at the end of the passage I'm going to read in a minute. And if you want to know what amazes Jesus, here, here it is. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Only two times in the Gospels do we read Jesus was amazed. Both of those times have to do with someone's faith. Now, the one's a negative example. Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. I can't believe you have all this evidence you still don't believe. You amaze me. That's one time. In this case, it's the opposite. This guy has faith, and Jesus is amazed. So if you want to know what astounds Jesus and amazes him in a positively shocking way, that's what our story's about. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and we're going to see how Jesus marries together faith and authority in the encounter he has with this Roman centurion and how that works out. So you can follow along as I read. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly. He was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So we're going to look a little bit, not just at understanding authority, Jesus turns it around, we're going to talk about encountering authority. Here is the Roman centurion, a man with authority, encountering Jesus, the ultimate authority, and what actually happens. Well, let's first of all talk about a Roman centurion. Centurion probably isn't a word you use this past week. A Roman centurion was a Roman military guy. He was not somebody that was drafted, he was an official, he was an officer. In fact, you probably know how many people would have been under his command. If he's a centurion, how many people would he be over? A hundred, just like century, centurion. He was in charge. He was the officer over at least a hundred men. But this guy um, was different. He was a Roman centurion. He had risen through the ranks. He was pretty good at his job. He was a good military guy. He was a good officer. His soldiers were in step. They accomplished the mission. He's leading this peacekeeping force in Israel. But he's also kind of tender-hearted, isn't he? Which... Probably doesn't go with a you know a life military guy. He has a servant, and the servant is ill, very ill. The servant's going to die if something miraculous doesn't happen. But we're told that the centurion really cares for this servant. The centurion doesn't see the servant as a piece of property that he owns. The centurion cares for the servant. The, the servant is precious to him the servant is someone that he wants to remain, he he admires him, he values him, not just for the product he's producing, but for who he is. We also know that he has a really good reputation with outsiders, with the Jews. Now remember, he's a Roman military guy leading the occupation force. If Jews hated sinners, Jewish religious leaders hated sinners, and they all hated tax collectors, they absolutely despised Roman soldiers. They were the enemy. They're the ones that had their foot, their boot, on their neck. They were the ones keeping them down, exploiting them. They were oppressing them. The Jews hated the Roman soldiers, and they especially hated the Roman soldier's officer. But the Jews liked this guy. The elders of the synagogue go to Jesus, and what did they say? Jesus, this guy deserves your help. Think about that. He had made quite an impression on these Jewish folks, right? This guy, Jesus, deserves your help. He cares for us. He protects us. He built our synagogue. Notice he's working for the common good. He probably didn't believe all that Jewish religion stuff, at least when he showed up. But he comes and he's caring for the people. He's a benevolent leader. In fact, we could probably read between the lines a little bit and say, this Roman centurion was probably leading the way Jesus led a whole lot more than the religious leaders in Israel were leading the way Jesus led. The religious leaders in Jesus' they the Pharisees and the scribes and such, they were leading according to that old flow, right? They had authority. We're the Pharisees. We're the leaders. We set up these hoops for you to jump through. If you jump through them, we may pat you on the back. If you don't jump through them, we're going to beat you and kick you in the butt. And maybe or maybe not, probably not, we won't accept you at the end. This guy is accepting, caring for, welcoming, loving, providing for Jewish people and his own servants. That's kind of remarkable, isn't it? And so they come to Jesus the elders in the synagogue come say Jesus you really should help this guy now in the two verses that are up on the screen you see one of many countercultural themes in this encounter lots of countercultural themes the first one we've already talked about our culture says authority accountability affirmation acceptance that's the flow Jesus doesn't follow the pattern. He turns it on his head. He welcomes and accepts everybody who comes. Everybody who's even rejected, he welcomes and accepts. That's the first countercultural thing. Here's another The elders from the synagogue come and they say to Jesus, Look, this man deserves for you to do this, right? Look at what the man himself says a little further down. I do not deserve you to even come to my house. Isn't that a radically different cultural idea? He says, I don't deserve it. The people are saying, you do deserve it. Why is that countercultural? Because we live the opposite. We often say things like this. Well, I deserve that. I deserve the promotion. I deserve the pay. I deserve the praise. I deserve the pat on the back. I deserve the extra vacation. I deserve your love. I deserve your acceptance. We say the I deserve thing, and other people look at us and say, you don't deserve it. In this case, the people, those that are kind of under him, they're saying he deserves it, and he's saying he doesn't deserve it. But that's countercultural, isn't it? In fact, it highlights a point that you've probably heard me say a few times before. It goes something like this. If we were to draw a really big circle, and inside the circle we put all human beings, everybody that's a body is inside the circle, right? We often want to draw a horizontal line in the middle of the circle and say this. There are good people, they're at the top of the circle, and there are bad people, right? So all of humanity's in the circle. The good people are on the top half. The bad people are at the bottom half. The good people are people God loves. The bad people God doesn't love. The good people Jesus accepts. The bad people Jesus doesn't accept. Only one problem with that. The Bible never, ever teaches that. But I guarantee you, if you talk to some of your friends, some of your neighbors, some of your co-workers, I'd be willing to bet that unless they know something about the Bible or unless they're followers of Jesus, that's what they would think. God divides humanity into the good and the bad. He loves the good but doesn't like the bad so much. In fact, the good kind of make it to the good place, the bad people go to the bad place, right? The Bible never says that. Here's what the Bible says. Okay, draw your circle. Put everybody in it. But the Bible never draws a horizontal line between good and bad. The Bible draws a a vertical line between the humble and the proud. Isn't that right? Those that are humble are those that admit their need, admit their inability to meet the need, and then run to Jesus, the one who can meet their need. The arrogant and the proud are those that think they can do it themselves. They don't need Jesus' help. They don't need anybody else's help. That's how the Bible draws the line. The Bible never draws the line between good and bad. The Bible draws the line between the humble and the proud. So here is the moral of this story. The Roman centurion who, according to outward appearances, has every reason to be pompous, arrogant, and proud, is filled with humility and he recognizes his own weakness. And the religious leaders, those that should be humble and recognizing their weakness, are arrogant, pompous, and proud. And Jesus welcomes and is amazed at the centurion's faith and he continually pushes aside the arrogant, proud religious leaders. Now that's countercultural, isn't it? We live in a world that says, God loves the good people, and they go to a good place. God doesn't love the bad people who go to a bad place. God doesn't say that. In fact, here's what the Bible says. Do you know good people go to heaven when they die, and bad people go to hell when they die? That's true. The Bible also says this. Good people go to hell when they die, and bad people go to heaven when they die. It says that too. Doesn't it? Because it's not goodness and badness that determines destination. It's humility admitting your weakness and trusting Jesus as the one who can meet your need or thinking and processing that you're going to do it yourself. You're going to be proud and pompous. That's the line. That's countercultural. And we see it coming out in this instant very, very clearly. Well, let's tease out some lessons. I've got four. I was thinking about six, but I think we'll do four. We have enough time for four. And here's the first lesson, and this grows right out of everything we've been saying. Uh, you need to know this. Self-help is an oxymoron. I know you don't believe it because you live in America in, in 2017, but self-help is an oxymoron. Actually, yeah, I actually thought of uh, some good oxymorons for this morning. Here we go. Here are some good o- oxymoron. Just act naturally. How about this one? She was found missing. The living dead. You see it on TV? That's kind of an oxymoron, right? Good grief. Resident alien. Uh, I made this one up. Government work. (laughs) And and maybe my favorite, butthead. (laughs) Now, don't think about that too much. You have all the, what, what? Uh, uh, They're oxymorons, right? They kind of don't make sense. Well, you want to know something? Self-help is an oxymoron. Why is it an oxymoron? Because regardless of how many times our world says it, regardless of how many experts go on television, regardless of how many books are written by sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, self-help doesn't help. Here's another very counter-cultural point from the Bible and from this experience. If self-help is the way to change then Jesus would have come handing out gift cards to Amazon. But he didn't come to give gift cards to Amazon. He came and gave his life for people that can't do what's required of them to do. It works kind of like this. Self-help can help because... Self is the problem. And talk about countercultural, here's how it works. We live in a world, a world of experts and novices that all say this. The real problems in your life are out here. Isn't that right? And tell you the truth, we all believe that. The real problems are out here. My wife, she's the problem. My husband, Charles, if you only knew, my kids, my job, my boss, my finances, my church, the pastoral staff, the youth leaders, the other kids, that's the problem, right? Real problems are out here. Okay, you all live in this world with me. Where's the solution, does our culture say? In here, right? Just follow your heart. Do what comes naturally. Go with your gut. Isn't that the message of our culture? You know something? If you do what comes naturally, you'll be wrong almost every time. Follow your heart, you'll be lost forever, right? Follow intuition, it doesn't work that way. Ever since, you know, the fall and sin has kind of so twisted our hearts and minds, what comes naturally takes us further from where the real solution is. So we live in a culture that says the real problems are out here, the solution is in here. The Bible says, no, no, no. The real problem is in here. Now, for you, not me. But, but you, you, you're the problem, right? In your life, you're the main problem. In my life, I'm the main problem. My biggest problem is not you, isn't my paycheck, isn't my kids, isn't my wife. My real problem is me, and your real problem is you. And the solution is outside of all of us. The solution is Jesus, right? You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were following the cultural script. Here's what they were saying. God has given us his word, and if we just jump through all the hoops and do all that God tells us to do, then we'll be in. We can do it. Try harder. Be committed. Be more disciplined, right? You're the solution. The problem's out there. Jesus comes along and says, no, no, you guys got that backwards. You are the problem, and I am the solution. Boy, that's radically countercultural, isn't it? But see, we would rather talk about living counterculturally by talking about places we can't go and people we shouldn't hang with. Uh, isn't that easy and superficial? The Bible never says stay away from filthy, creepy people and bad places. The Bible says stay away from cultural messages and don't believe the message that says the, the problems are out there and the solutions in here. Don't believe that nonsense because that's not true. Don't follow the paradigm of authority that says it all goes down and acceptance is hanging at the end. Follow the gospel line where acceptance is the beginning and we turn that model upside down. Let's be countercultural the biblical way. But it's a lot easier to be countercultural the superficial way, right? Well, we better move on. That one hurts too much. Here's another one. Acknowledgement of need precedes meeting the need. Just in case you haven't noticed, that's God's standard operating procedure. God's not going to meet your need until you first acknowledge your need. And you can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and discover that. For example, even before Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, Adam has a need. He has a need to be in community with somebody like him. But there's no woman yet, right? but God just doesn't meet his need. Adam first has to recognize the need, so God gives him an assignment. Go name all the animals. Eventually, Adam Adam comes back and says, wow, a whole bunch of things out there. None of them are like me. God says, oh, good, you learned a lesson, right? Now that you know your need, I'll meet your need. How often does Jesus say when people, when he encounters people, so what do you want me to do for you? What would you like me to do Right? Acknowledge your need. But remember, acknowledging your need comes from humility. And as long as you're proud, you won't acknowledge your need. See how it all kind of fits together? Acknowledgement of need precedes the meeting of the need. That's how the gospel works. And it takes humility to acknowledge the need. And if you don't acknowledge the need, you're not going to get your need met. Now, rather than that being something that... uh, should be a major problem for us, if you spend any time in the Bible at all, that should basically be normal. But here's our problem. We very easily and quickly learn to live with flaws and imperfections in things. Isn't that right? I'll ask the ladies a question first. Ladies, are there any imperfections, things that you really would like to change in your house or apartment? Or is it exactly perfectly the way you want You don't have to yell out loud. Don't elbow him either, right? All right, man, here's one for you. Any imperfections or flaws with your car? Or is it like exactly? But we kind of live with it, right? Uh, A friend of mine hit a deer. I'm guessing three or four years ago. Still dented, and I guess he just took the insurance check and spent it on dinner or something. But he lives with the dent in his car like for years. He's just gotten used to it. He doesn't even notice it anymore. Some of you have filthy cars on the inside. You just kind of learn to live with it, right? Or maybe it's your house, imperfections, Nick's here, right? Holes in the wall there, furniture on cinder blocks, right? Well, you just kind of grow with it. But here's our problem. We learn to live with flaws and imperfections in things, but never in people. We're like critical to the T when it comes to people. So we say things like this. Boy, she's really nice. She's really cute. But she's got this weird laugh that kind of freaks me out. I could never go out with her. Or this guy, you know, he really is a sweet guy. I love him. He's so funny. I love spending time with him. But I'm looking for somebody with really good hair. Right? Or maybe a guy says, well, um, I really have great kids. They're good in school. They're obedient. They do all that. I just wish they were better at soccer. Or maybe a, a wife says, you know, my, my husband, he's a great dad. He even tries to be romantic. You know, he's doing this 626 thing. He's really trying, but I wish he made more money. Or maybe the wife says, you know, uh, or maybe the husband says, you know, my, my wife, she, she really is great. She's great with the kids, the best mom ever. She meets all my needs. She's a great cook. Does a... But ever since she put on that weight, you know, isn't it funny? We learn to live with imperfections and flaws in things, but never people. Kind of the opposite of Jesus, right? Look at the group of people he assembled as his team. But it's not just here. I made a list. And since I made it, you're going to hear it. (laughs) Imperfect, flawed people, just in case you were wondering. Moses stuttered. Abraham was too old. David was too young. Solomon was too rich. Naomi was too poor. Jonah ran away from God. Timothy had ulcers. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon doubted. Elijah was burned out. Martha worried too much. Noah got drunk, Paul was a murderer, and John the Baptist was just flat-out weird. (laughs) And we all know their names. And they played a significant strategic role in the plan in the kingdom of God. God almost says, it's your flaws that allow my grace to shine. It's your weaknesses that allow my strength to blossom. So don't use your flaws as an excuse. Bring your flaws to Jesus and watch what he can do with them. So acknowledging the needs, the beginning of needing, getting the need met. All right, thirdly, great followers make great leaders. One of the great prerequisites for being a great leader, it's not go to leadership training, not go to Wharton and get you know, an MBA. Uh, you can do that if you want. But the best leaders, the best prerequisite for to be a great follower. What does Jesus call us to do? Follow him. And your leadership ability will be corresponding to your followership. That's what happens. Uh, A a number of months ago, I I read an interesting story. Uh, There was a girl, uh, senior in high school, it's September, time to fill out college applications. And she always wanted in her life, you know, to go to this great college, but she knew she'd never get in. She had good grades and all, but she was kind of shy in the background. So she gets the application, and reluctantly she's kind of filling it out. And there at the end was the question she dreaded. The question was, are you a leader? Well, she wanted to be honest, and so she wrote no, and she mailed it in, and she waited for her rejection letter. Since this is acceptance week at most schools, um, the letter came, and she knew it was a rejection letter. She opened it up, true story, and this is what she read. We wanted to inform you that this entering class at X college, we will be admitting 1,452 leaders. And you, because we thought there needed to be at least one person who would follow. (laughs) That's not bad, right? She knew, she was a follower. My guess is she knows how to lead a whole lot better than those that wrote on the paper they were great leaders to start. Great followers, they're the ones that make great leaders. One last lesson, then we're done. Now, you got to think of the last few weeks and the encounters that Jesus had in order to tie this one up. You can tell a person by the company he keeps. You've heard of that expression, right? You tell a lot about the person by the company he keeps, okay? Here's the question after only three weeks. So what kind of person is Jesus? He hangs out with lepers who are unclean, prostitutes with a bad reputation from the sinner, and Roman soldiers who are oppressing and exploiting the people of God. Oh, yeah, not to mention the 12 misfits, non-dream teamers that he calls disciples. That's who he hangs out with. Um, How about you? What can we tell about you by the company you keep? So here's my question. If Jesus turns that authority deal upside down and accepts and welcomes because he's approachable, anybody who comes... Are you approachable? Are you approachable? Or do you send superiority signals? And you know what I'm talking about. We can send superiority signals in a lot of different ways. We send superiority signals by parading our education, our wealth, our theological knowledge, um, our IQ, our pedigree. We send those messages all the time. Are you approachable? Let's make it a, a little more pointed. Husbands, are you approachable by, you know, to your wife and kids, are you always right? Wives, are you approachable to your husband, or is he afraid of how you're going to react? Parents, can your kids come to you with anything? Bosses. Do your employees or those you manage uh, have to shade the truth and spin it a little bit because they fear what the consequences may be? How about friends? Can your friends come and ask you a favor and you're ready and willing to meet it? Or are they reluctant to come to you? If they'd go to somebody else. Here's the interesting thing when you read through the Gospels, you discover that those on the bottom rungs of the ladder, not, not, well, I'm not talking financial only, those on the bottom rungs of the ladder, when it came to the religious elite, they loved Jesus, didn't they? I mean, in Romans, so he goes to Jesus. The leper goes to Jesus. The sinful woman goes to Jesus. The disciples, they all go to Jesus. Now, the religious people, they weren't into Jesus too much, right? So sinners loved to be with Jesus. Religious people didn't like to be with Jesus. Who likes to be with you? I have a hunch. Here's my hunch. Religious people probably like to be with you because you go to church and you're religious, you live between the, you know, you color in all the lines, and probably sinful people, they don't like to be with you. Huh. Kind of opposite Jesus, huh? What's up with that? You can tell a lot about people by the company they keep. I sure hope you have a long list of people that color outside the lines, that don't live life according to the script that you may be living by, but I sure hope you're living according to those countercultural principles in this story and the countercultural principles of the gospel, and I sure hope you have lots and lots of people that you can invite into your life and invite to come with you to an Easter service. Self-help is an oxymoron. It takes humility to admit the need, but until you admit the need, you're never going to get the need met. You want to be a great leader? Learn how to follow Jesus closely. Remember, you can tell a lot about people by the company they keep. Let's keep the company Jesus kept, huh? Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for these crazy encounters. Jesus picking a team of non-Dreamers. Jesus sending them on a mission that they really aren't qualified to fulfill. Interacting, welcoming, accepting people that others threw aside and rejected. But Lord, through their lives, transformation happens and the world begins to change. May that be true for us too. May we be quick to acknowledge our need, run to Jesus to get the need met, and then be propelled into mission, continuing what Jesus started, in our context and in our world that communicates exactly what he's all about. We pray in his name. Amen.